Hello, I'm Cathy Rensenbrink and this is the Bookseller Podcast. Hello and welcome to the seventh edition of the Bookseller Podcast. The Bookseller has been the magazine of the book trade since 1858, reporting on everything from the publication of The Mill on the Floss to the news last week that An American Marriage by Tayari Jones is the highly deserving winner of the Women's Fiction Prize. In this edition, we'll be talking to Nathan Filer about his new book, The Heartland. I'm assuming immediately after this interview, we'll go and take a, some LSD and some Class A drugs. And, <laughs> and if, they don't, if that doesn't radically distort our experience of lived reality and make us psychotic, then, then you know, we're going to want to speak to the dealer, aren't we? And to Caroline Sanderson about the big books coming in June. And we'll play out with an audiobook extract of On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, which is written and read by Ocean Vong. And we'll be talking to this month's book doctors about which books they'd choose for our patients, eager readers who want to know what to pick up next. With me, as he is every month, is the bookseller's chief exec, Nigel Roby. Hi, Kathy. Let's start off by talking to one of my favourite people in the whole world. She is Caroline Sanderson. Caroline, welcome. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> it's entirely true. It's a pleasure to sit across from you. I love reading all your stuff in the bookseller. I eagerly turn to your non-fiction articles when it's that month. So maybe start off by telling us what's happening in June. Oh, well, completely delighted to be back. And um, well, yes, I'm feeling rather smug about nonfiction because everyone keeps telling me that nonfiction is having a moment. Having um, a moment. I think yeah. it's more than a moment. I think it's always been having a moment personally. But yes, it is very interesting how people are saying to me, you know, that's where they're going to find out things. That's where they're going to try and make sense of what's happening. And I'm not for a minute suggesting that fiction can't do that because, mm-hmm. um, oddly enough, I do read novels as well, avidly. But but I, I think there's some, some truth in that. Um, there's some remarkable memoirs coming this summer, which I'll talk about some of them in a minute. But there are lots of smart thinking books that are doing very well. And I'm hoping that we're just ever curious about other people's lives as well and people who lead very different lives from us just getting insights in what it's like to be somebody else. Which is, I suppose, is one of the main reasons for reading I have always felt. I want to know what it feels like to be someone else. And then that tends to shed light back on what it feels like to be me. <laughs> Absolutely. And I th- I think um, Nathan Filer's The Heartland is a classic example of that. I mm. mean, it's a book about people with different kinds of psychosis, but actually it's a book that makes you realise that we are all very much on the same continuum when it comes to mental health mm-hmm. um, And I found that absolutely compelling in terms of what the book says overall. Yes, it's an astonishing book, isn't it? I thought he did an incredibly brilliant job as well of stepping his way through the controversies. As he says, schizophrenia has been controversial since someone came up with the term and remains so, but I thought he did an amazing job of navigating the territory. Yes, completely. And and I mean, I think he says if we tentatively take a seat in this debate, the first thing that will become clear is that there is no uncontroversial language mm. when talking about mental illness. And that's what the book did for me. I mean, it just illuminated so much about what we talk about when we talk about mental illness and also the different approaches to trying to help people. So the quite medicalised approach versus the sort of therapeutic route. Mm -hmm. And I guess I knew a bit about that, but that it just clarified so many things 
for me. And also the case stories in the book are just extraordinary, very, very moving. One in particular is absolutely heartrending, particularly reading it as a mother, but at the same time so illuminating. I'm mm-hmm. so, so pleased that I read that book. And I wonder, did you feel, as I did, um, be interviewing him later on in the programme, there are a lot of books now when doctors write about their patients or people interview people to shed light. And of course, although he was a mental health nurse, he's not writing about any of the people he knew professionally. He's interviewed these people. I just felt there was a level of humanity in the way that he was responding to the people that he was interviewing. I absolutely didn't feel he was sort of like, oh, I need someone for this and someone for that. Uh, I didn't feel he was interviewing people to reinforce his own convictions. It just felt so authentic that he was out seeking truth from other people. Not in the slightest. I mean, I was lucky enough to interview him for the bookseller and I was very struck by how honest he was about... I suppose you could play the card of I was a mental health nurse, you know, I know about this territory. But actually, he was so honest in saying that actually, I didn't think about a lot of these things when I was working as a mental health Mm. nurse, because you're just doing the job. And in a way, it's only since he's stepped away from that profession that a lot of things have become much clearer to him. And yes, you're absolutely right. You know, he lets the people in his book very much tell their own story. But you know, the overarching thing is, you know, we're all in this together. You know, we're all there, but for, I suppose we would have said there, but for the grace of God, but there, but for something happening in your life that just completely throws you off course. You know, mm-hmm. we're all we're all in this together, really. In yes. this life. Yes, it's a big humane book, isn't it? A book that connects people, really, rather than um, But also divides. just really informative, too, as I say. You know, it's not just an emotional read. It's a book that really illuminates... Um, uh, 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 mental health and also what we try and do about it, you know, Mm -hmm. how we tackle it. And of course, we have a real crisis in funding and things at the moment. So, Yep, true that it's very good to always learn something from books. What else can you teach me in June? What can I teach you in June? Well, I want to talk about three memoirs, I think. Um, The first one being Mothership by Francesca Segal. And Francesca is um, an award-winning novelist and this is her first non-fiction book. And it beautifully evokes the real heart-in-the-mouth weeks after she gave birth to identical twin girls um, very prematurely. And these babies, there was a real fight ahead to hold on to life. So it's really about that extraordinary, terrifying time that she spent close to these babies. I think actually at one time they were in different hospitals and so there's all the sort of logistical difficulties of that. But it's called The Mothership because it's a really a wonderful book about a fellowship of mothers. It's about how the other mothers who are in this situation of having had babies mm. with who were premature or with um, uh, one difficulty or another in the sort of first weeks of life, how they all kind of band together and the sort of solidarity because it's... You know, it's that time, it's a very celebratory time if you're lucky enough to have babies as I did without too much difficulty Mm -hmm. and healthy babies who are able to come home straight away. You know, it's such a wonderful time um, and an exciting time, but it really makes you think about how lucky you were to be able to do that. (laughs) Happily, well, perhaps no spoilers, but... uh, yeah, it does have a happy ending. Well, I, think, ending, it, I think it is nice to know if you're going to read that sort of book. Actually, it's not a bad thing to know that you 
You're probably right. You, you don't yeah. end up in terribly, desperately sad territory. And we should also say um, that it's a wonderful tribute also to NHS neonatal care. Yes, NHS. How much do we love the NHS? We love the NHS. We love the NHS. <laughs> Let's just say it again, shall we? We love we the NHS. We can't say enough. We love the NHS. We'd like to keep it for ourselves, please. What else, Caroline? Uh, something very different. A memoir called Family Business by Peter J. Conradi. And this is published by the Welsh-based publisher, Seren. Small but perfectly formed. Peter J. Conradi is Iris Murdoch's official biographer. And Iris Murdoch's centenary falls next month, I think I'm right in saying, in July. So there's going to be lots of um, events to commemorate that. Um, Peter and his partner Jim knew Iris Murdoch and John Bailey, her husband, very well sort of towards the end of her life. And in fact, spent quite a lot of time caring for Iris Murdoch when she was suffering from Alzheimer's. And I think it's, I found this really interesting as a memoir because there's sort of three parts to it. There's part of it is about Peter Conradi's own childhood, growing up in this sort of very upwardly mobile Jewish family. It made me think of Hair with Amber Eyes, the Edmund de Waal book. And then there's the sort of middle section, which is about being a young gay man in London, really, just after homosexuality was decriminalised, so working for early gay rights. And then the latter part of the book um, about Iris Murdoch. And it's a sort of fascinating three-part look at her life. And I think he's able to be much more personal than he was able to be in the official biography. So it's very interesting to have that sort of personal view of what Iris Murdoch was like. And uh, if, you've got the, if I've counted right, there should be another one to come. One more to, one come. More to come. Yes. Oh, what shall I choose? Well, I'd like to highlight My Past is a Foreign Country by Zeba Telkani. And Zeba is just 28 and she's of Indian heritage, but she grew up in Saudi Arabia. And the book really is about navigating that as a young woman because essentially she rejected the sort of traditional path that her culture had mapped out for her and eventually came to the UK to sort of forge her own life. She works in publishing now. And I, I found it, it the sort of remarkable insight really in the book as to how she sort of fought for her individuality as a feminist Muslim woman and conquering some of the sort of very negative experiences of her early life. And it, in fact, it made me think a bit of it sounds completely different from Carrie Hudson's Lowborn, but I think both books are about navigating the circumstances that you're born into and how mm. you break out of them. If you want, indeed, you want to break yeah. out of them, but how you how you go about that? What's how do you find your path? Mm-hmm. But the fact that your past will also always be part of you, so that doesn't go away, even though you've sort of forged this very different life. And I thought that was a fascinating read about that. And again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, doesn't it? You know, other lives and the resonances that it had for us and Mm. thinking about, you know, if things had been different, I might have been on a similar journey Mm -hmm. or or not. So, Mm -hmm. Um, Thinking about fiction, I know that you are a Kate Atkinson fan, as I am. I am indeed. Well, I'm always a bit behind the curve with fiction because I have so much (laughs) non-fiction to read, but... Yes, indeed. I'm a I'm a big Kate Atkinson fan, but in fact, Jackson Brody, her Jackson Brody novels, I'm quite new to. I only read my first one, Shock Horror, mm. um, a few months ago, but I'm complete convert. So I think I might work my way through them and then come to the new one. But very exciting. Yeah. So the new one's called Big Sky, um, and it is absolutely wonderful. She just has a precision in her writing that is possibly unparalleled. I think, and she does this amazing thing where she's in some pretty hefty and depressing territory 
which I almost don't want to say because I've said to a couple of people how good the book is and they're like, oh, but isn't it about, well, I am going to say, isn't it about trafficking, people trafficking? I'm worried, I'll, I'm worried that I'll find it too depressing. But actually, yes, she's in some very difficult territory, but she pulls the whole thing off so magnificently. Well, she finds the light and shade that's the light and shade of life always, doesn't she? But the character always leads. I mean, it's a, it's about the, so much about the people, yeah. isn't it? It's not about the issues. I mean, she might happen to pick up on that in some, some way, mm-hmm. but I mean, I haven't read it, but I imagine that that's not the overarching sort of feel of it when you read it. No, and on the point of light and shade, actually, of course, not published this month, but... Um, Last week, Tayari Jones won the Women's Fiction Prize. So for looking forward to reading an American that. Marriage. It is just, it's just so utterly brilliant. And again, as I read it, and I was doing all those things you do when you read a book that you love, I was thinking, oh, this is ever so good, and I wanted to carry on reading it. And the thing that I just found staggering about it is, again, she's in some very difficult territory. It's about the wrongful incarceration of a black man in America. Um, she has done all the research, she knows all the stats, she knows how many people that truly happens to, what a terrible issue it is, and yet somehow she manages to explore this territory with so much humanity, and yet also with, you know, with light, with with humour, with lots of love. It's just such a brilliant novel, and I am desperate for every single person in the whole world to read it. And well, I was thinking I, how... I, I will read it. I'm so glad that it's won the Women's Fiction Prize, because, of course... The great thing about prizes, and this is very obvious, but sometimes we slightly forget, the great thing about prizes is it just brings books to a wider audience. They do, and and the shortlists as well. I mean, I I, I think... uh so many prizes have obviously we end up talking about the winner but you know terrific shortlist for the women's prize and I love the way that shortlists are getting more attention now and indeed you have a long list as well so it's all about discovery so whichever book you end up picking you you know you're going to get something good yes absolutely so An American Wife is is so on my summer Mm, reading list because actually when I go away in the summer um, although I'm always flying the flag for non-fiction 365 days a year I do have to have a fiction catch-up time and that's when I go away. So I need to ask you what else fiction-wise I should be taking on holiday. I feel very empowered. Um, Well, the Kate Atkinson obviously is magnificent and another book from June that I just think is superb is On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vong, who is a poet and this is just an extraordinary novel it's told in the form of a letter from a son called Little Dog and the letter is to his mother who can't read which sounds a bit like it doesn't make sense except of course as you read the novel you realise well if his mother could read would he be able to tell her these things that he's telling her that he feels empowered to tell her probably because she can't quite understand what it is he's saying so it takes us back into the family history which is rooted in Vietnam Um, it's uh, exploration of race and class and masculinity and again I don't want to make it sound like a difficult book because it is full of light and full of joy and I finished it feeling pretty gorgeous (laughs) I love it when there's a title that you just think (laughs) well I love that title so much I have to read the book no matter what it's like and with Ocean Vong you've got an author name that you've just got to I think I have to read this person I know Ocean Vong glorious isn't it I like saying it another book I really enjoyed Everything You Ever Wanted by Louisa Salma Um, I don't actually know if I've pronounced that correctly Um, this is so we have a character called Iris and she's living a sort of a 20-something life in London. She drinks too much, etc. She's, you know, has a bit of a weird job. But the option she has is that she can move 
to another planet. There's a planet called Nyx, and she has the option of moving there to start a new life. And, of course, she does. And, of course, because you're very intelligent and our listeners are very intelligent, we've probably already worked out the new life might not be quite so good as we hope. <laughs> um, but I found that very enjoyable. And then there's also The Body Lies by Joe Baker. She wrote a great book called Longborn, which was the that thing, oh, yes, sort of Pride and Prejudice, yes. as seen from the perspective yes, of the terrific. servants. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Lots of great stuff like... Um, I have read that. The bit when Lizzie Bennet goes to visit her sister Jane with her dirty petticoats and who washed the petticoats. And there's all sorts of magnificent detail in that. So this is the new one from her. And it's about a novelist who takes a job teaching creative writing um, and then one of her students starts to submit some disturbing material. It's a great book. I think as well writers will like it because of course lots of writers like me do teach creative writing. <laughs> and so it's believable as a setup. You know that, that thing what you do when somebody gives you some writing and you find the writing disturbing and you're trying to work out how you can help them um, make their writing better. It's all three sold. <laughs> Wonderful. And I've only just started reading it as well, but on the basis of a few pages, I also would suggest This Brutal House by Niven Govindan, who's a writer I really like. And this book is published by Dialogue Books, new imprint, Charmaine Lovegrove's new imprint um, over at Little Brown. And on the first few pages, it's just wonderful. So I'd also recommend that. Marvellous. So I think that's all we've got time for. Caroline, it has been such a pleasure, as it always is, to talk to you about non-fiction and fiction and books happening in June and a couple of books happening elsewhere outside of June. (laughs) Thank you very much indeed. Great pleasure for me too. Thanks very much. Nathan Filer is a qualified mental health nurse whose first novel, The Shock of the Fall, won the Costa Book of the Year, among many other accolades and prizes. He joins us today to talk about his new book, The Heartland, Finding and Losing Schizophrenia. Welcome, Nathan. Thanks for coming in to see us. Thank you very much for having me. Let's just start by saying, why this book? Why this subject? Yeah, why this subject? I feel like I've been writing about it for quite a long time now, which wasn't really a conscious decision, but this book very much came out of my last book. I think they're quite intimately connected, mm-hmm. really. So a few years ago, I wrote a, a novel called The Shock of the Fool, which detailed the the life of a young man coming to terms with the loss of his brother. But he had some very strange experiences as well. I didn't diagnose him in the book, but I think if I had, I would have diagnosed mm-hmm. him with schizophrenia. And lots of the scenes were set in the mental health care setting mm-hmm. and mental health wards and, and so on. So so I wrote that book in any case and um and it came out and readers started to get in touch with me and lots of the people who were getting in touch with me were sharing some stories from their own lives, true stories about themselves living in some way in the shadow of this diagnosis of schizophrenia. It means very different things to different people, as you know from reading the book. I started entering into correspondence with some of these people And I was meeting people all the time. It wasn't just readers getting in touch, but because of going around and talking about the shock of the fall and going and doing, you know, giving lectures and things like that, I was meeting more and more people whose lives had been affected by schizophrenia. Um, And so this book sort of emerged from that, really, because at its heart are a number of of these stories. And you say quite early on in the book that, of course, the difference really between real life and fiction is that real life is a lot messier and the people that were getting in contact with you didn't have the tools that you had through fiction with your story to make it neat. And you've obviously found that non-fiction is a way to explore that messiness. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So rarely did the the stories that were landing in my inbox have the the kind of neatly conceived beginning, middle and end that as a novelist I'd had the luxury to craft. I think this phenomenon that we call mental illness is 
messy, is chaotic, it can be very, very difficult to make sense of. But that's all the more reason to try. Mm -hmm. I I think there's a a fragility to the mental health of, of all of us. And so it serves us all to try and do that. Very near the beginning of the book, you say that there is no uncontroversial language in this area. And the word schizophrenia itself is included in that. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, yeah, I, I, gosh, there's certainly controversy around the term schizophrenia. I think I say in the book, there's no uncontroversial language when talking about mental illness, and that includes the phrase mental illness. <laughs> I mean, there really, there really mm-hmm. is no uncontroversial terms. And broadly speaking, I think the controversy surrounding a term relates to how medical it feels. So the example I give in the book, and we should definitely come on to schizophrenia, but, but I start with what I think is you know, for most people would seem like a fairly innocuous uh, term, the collective noun for people accessing mental health treatment. So if you are a person who is experiencing very distressing, uh, alarming, uncharacteristic thoughts, feelings and behaviours, and when we talk about mental illness, that is what we're always talking about, is people's thoughts, feelings and behaviours. So if you're experiencing that and you consider that to be an illness... Uh, presumably located within your brain, but otherwise the same is uh, a sort of physical illness, well, then you might want to think of yourself as a patient because, you know, essentially you're experiencing the same thing as those patients down the hall who are being treated for, you know, cancer or diabetes or whatever, then why would you want to be called something else? However, if you're of the opinion, um, as lots of people are, and lots of people who I spoke to are, that even the most alarming and distressing and uncharacteristic of your thoughts, feelings and behaviours are not symptomatic of illness, but rather perhaps a perfectly natural response to undischarged trauma, Mm -hmm. a way of coming to terms and coping with unbearably stressful life events, then to see that wrapped up in a kind of medical language, which begins with the the word patient, might be problematic. Mm -hmm. And so I talk about this in the book because I reflect on the fact it was during my own nurse training um, back in the early 2000s that the word patient fell out of favour. And uh, and we started to use the term service user because that felt like a more neutral term. But then what about those service users who are detained in hospital against their will, perhaps medicated against their will, can we in all conscience say that they're service users? Mm. Probably not. And and so today there's a sort of growing minority of people who eschew both terms and they identify as, as survivors. At first glance, this can look like, you know, it's a sort of semantic debate. And it is a debate about language. But I think in the mad world of mental health care, language is everything. Mm. You, you know, I think um, a truth not, widely appreciated is that for the vast, vast majority of what we call the mental illnesses, there aren't objective tests, there aren't blood tests or brain scans, it's the words people use Mm. or do not use as interpreted by doctors that results in diagnosis and can result in a diagnosis like schizophrenia. So uh, to answer your your question, and sorry to come about it in such a roundabout way, but if you see there's so much controversy around a simple word like patient, you can then begin to imagine the controversy Mm -hmm. around something like schizophrenia where there is really no agreement over what this is you know like everything is up for grabs there is acrimonious debate among the fields of psychiatry psychology neuroscience these survivor groups service user groups over everything from causes risk factors categorization whether the whole term is outlasted its usefulness if it ever was useful and should be rebuilt from scratch or abandoned so in the book i don't use the, the term schizophrenia i say so-called mm. schizophrenia i don't like that term you know I'm a novelist and I think it's a really unwieldy kind of Mm -hmm. part of me cringes at the Mm -hmm. unwieldiness of it 
but it's an attempt to be respectful to that myriad of opinions and to respect people who find comfort in the language of medicine, but also those who feel they've been injured by it. One of the other things about the book and about the language is how sketchy our general understanding might be, by which I mean the understanding of some of the terms. And I wondered whether you might tell us a little bit about Erica. So you talk to various people in the book and tell us about how Erica finds out what her doctor thinks is wrong with her. Yeah, gosh, it's just shocking, isn't it? So Erica was the first person, um, I can use her full name. So some of the people in the book chose to be anonymous, Mm -hmm. sort of varying degrees of anonymity. uh, And uh, a couple of the people were happy not to be. And uh, so it's Erica Crompton. uh, And she's an amazing person. And she she writes a lot about her own uh, experiences of living with this diagnosis of um of schizophrenia but the first time she saw her diagnosis well actually what she saw was the word psychotic mm-hmm. um and we could talk about what that means but um she knew she'd been having a tough time she'd been you know she'd been having a really tough time but the first she saw that word psychotic uh in her medical notes was during a routine smear test you know and i think obviously I've never had a smear test but I can't imagine there's a time when you'd feel much more vulnerable you know <laughs> <laughs> um, and then to and then to suddenly see that word in uh, that word and she and she she talked about it as it feeling like um, an item of her clothing was was on fire suddenly like it was just this thing on her that she had to get rid of and she talks about how you know she didn't know what that word meant and for her she just had all of these associations uh, that she'd picked up from, you know, reading the tabloid newspapers mm. through the through the you know eighties and nineties, and that very strong association with uh, with violence, and mm. and and she re- she remembers thinking, gosh, if I have children, am I gonna am I gonna kill my children? Mm-hmm. You, you know, so incredibly distressing, and and you know she's such a lovely person, and mm-hmm. she she hasn't hurt anybody. She didn't have those thoughts because she'd had you know mm. these violent thoughts, but it was the association. I think the word psychotic is widely misunderstood, isn't it? I know somebody who had to uh, start taking some antipsychotic medication, and when she told people she was taking antipsychotic medication, they thought that was to stop her being violent. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Could you tell us what you think it means? Yeah, sure. I mean. As with all of these terms, different people think different things Mm. about it. And and it's not an especially precise term. But at its broadest and most simplistic, it's the the name we give to the experience of losing touch with reality Mm. or, you know, what other people perceive to be reality. So it's not sort of an illness or a disease in itself. It can be symptomatic Mm. of disease. It's like the typical feature in most forms of dementia. I think I say in the book as well, you know, we might actively choose to be psychotic. Um, I'm, I'm assuming immediately after this interview, we'll go and take a, some LSD and some class A drugs. And, <laughs> and if they don't, if that doesn't radically distort our experience of lived reality and make us psychotic, then, then you know, we're going to want to speak to the dealer, aren't we? So, um, so, so many of us are psychotic at certain points in our life. But it can also be... Uh, I believe, and many people believe, a response to to stressful life events, to extreme trauma. Uh, It can be a kind of storytelling that goes on in the mind, perhaps a a coping strategy gone awry. And there's lots of evidence and lots of interesting thinking around that. And so psychosis is... It's not the only feature of so-called schizophrenia, but but it's a it's a defining feature. I know because you say it in the book that you're really keen to dispel some of the unhelpful myths. Um, what would some of those be? Well, I suppose the main one is um, this idea of split personality. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's probably that's endured pretty immutably in the public imagination, hasn't it? And um, I mean, it's partly a case of 
poor branding, I think. If it, the, the word schizophrenia is taken from the Greek schiz, meaning split and friend, mind. So, mm-hmm. um, so it's badly named, really. Um, but it doesn't mean split personality. It doesn't mean multiple personality. And I suppose the, the other... Um, significant myth is around violence you know there's not no association between Mm -hmm. uh, becoming psychotic and and being violent there is uh, but it's vastly vastly exaggerated I think and you know the uh, the media has some responsibility for that I think um, I say in the book um, I cite a piece of research that says you know if you have this diagnosis of schizophrenia you're something like 15 times more likely to be the victim of violence than, mm-hmm. than the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, there's plenty more myths besides. And as I explore those, we, we can see that uh, maybe even some of the sort of fundamental ways that we understand these things, diagnosis, the medical model as a whole, may be a myth in mm-hmm. itself. Uh, I was so impressed with the way that you um, navigate all this incredibly difficult territory. Um, difficult because it's controversial, difficult because it's sometimes distressing was it a hard book to write yes (laughs) (laughs) this is silly questions all books are hard books to write they are aren't they they are yeah it was was incredibly hard to write and what i think was especially hard with this book more so than uh writing a novel though i think novels are uniquely difficult to write in their own ways but i felt such a responsibility with this book to uh, the five people whose stories I tell mm-hmm. and to get those right. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a journalist and I don't have a sort of journalistic killer instinct. I, I wasn't trying to get a scoop. I, you know, I wanted to tell their stories properly and for them to feel heard and, and recognise themselves on the page. And that felt like a, a massive responsibility, you know, to the point with one of the stories that we went back and forth for a year in our correspondence of mm-hmm. me sending what I'd return and then sort of you know getting Mm -hmm. feedback on that and just trying to get that right so people felt um properly represented and yeah that felt like a big responsibility and that made it very very, like emotionally difficult Mm -hmm. I suppose to write as well do you have hopes for the book do you hope it's a contribution to a debate what would you like to happen I want the same thing that I wanted with my last book I I want people to read it to share it to talk about it I don't really write with a a sort of political agenda Mm -hmm. and um, and I hope that comes across in the book that I don't I don't try and position myself on, you know, there is this great debate going on and there clearly is a bit of a divide at the moment with um, different ideologies competing for dominance. I think that is going on. But I don't have an agenda there. I don't I don't especially feel I want to side with one side or another. I want to introduce readers to that conversation and to show people that and for people to hopefully make up their own mind. And I suppose ultimately, I hope that in reading the book, that people will feel more empathetic as a result of reading it and reading those stories. Well, I think they certainly will. And if I can, shall I quote you at yourself? One of my favourite lines is, you say, it's not always possible to find the right words, but we can still be part of the conversation. We can walk with people for a bit, sit with them, hear them. And I think that's what you're allowing us to do by having written this book. I hope so. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Right, and now I'm going to hand you over to Nigel to quiz the book doctors. Thanks, Cathy. 
I was thinking that we always call this the book doctor section, but for new listeners, we don't really explain what we're doing. So here's another way of looking at it. We ask lovely, knowledgeable bookshops to give readers tips on what to read next. So really, they're a bit more like book coaches and doctors. Anyway, enough of that. Let's meet our two guests today. From Bedford, we have Rachel Rogan of, wait for it, Rogan's Books. And from my favourite city, Edinburgh, it's Julie Danskin from Golden Hair. Welcome to you both. Hi. So, Julie, let me ask you first about a rather exciting night out in London about three weeks ago. Do you remember that? Uh, What was that all about then? Somehow, unbelievably, Golden Hair Books won Independent Bookshop of the Year. It was amazing. It was such a good party. I did have slightly, as my dad would say, um, sore hair the next day. (laughs) Um, It was a great celebration with lots of bookseller friends um, and publishers and everything. It was really wonderful. Um, We did not expect our name to be called at all. Um, there's some amazing bookshops on that shortlist and then ones that weren't and it's just a, a real privilege. Yeah, it's been an amazing three weeks. Everyone, all of our customers, I think, feel like it's for them as well, which well, is really is. lovely. Well, it is, yeah. I like yeah. that. Um, and a great son of Edinburgh presented you with the prize, I think. Absolutely. The the one and only Ian Rankin, yeah. um, who's a good friend of the shop. He's actually chairing an event for us next week. So, um, yeah, he said that he should get half of the prize money. So, um, <laughs> so mean. And for people who don't know you, whereabouts in Edinburgh are you? You're not bang in the middle. We're not. We're down in um, Stockbridge, which is a lovely, um, quite leafy but vibrant suburb of the city. But it feels it's got like a, lots of independent shops, and the street we're on, St Stephen Street, is quite famous for um, vintage boutiques and little um, indie shops and that kind of thing. And there's a real community. There's a real buzz about the place. We've got a Sunday market, which brings loads of people. It's, it's really great. It's a lovely. It's a lovely community. Yeah, well, that sounds nice. So, well, I'll be up in August, so I'll come and see you then. So. Oh, please do. That would be lovely, yeah. That would be great, Nigel. Please do. And, Rachel, I was reading about Rogan's books in the bookseller, and it sounded like you had an absolute nightmare in 2017. <laughs> what what happened, and how did it turn out? Uh, we did. We had a little bit of a, a rocky start. We um, we started out in a what I thought was a beautiful premises right in the heart of one of our loveliest suburbs in Bedford. And pretty much from the word go, we had uh, problems with water leaking from the flats above. That's not great for books, Um, is it? (laughs) Books don't really like to be underwater. It's not the best (laughs) of situations. And so we moved and we had the most amazing response from our local community because when we had to close and we had to move everything into my house whilst we found a new premises and whilst we moved across, and this kind of underground book buying market (laughs) came about where people would message me and ask me for a recommendation and I'd go into my back room clamber over boxes of books find something that was suitable they'd then come to my doorstep hand over some money I'd scribble out a receipt and give them the book it was all very dodgy yeah really yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And if you expect us to believe that story, you know, <laughs> Bedford police are on their way as we talk. There was an actual story about in the Bedford newspaper recently about an old gentleman who was carefully cultivating a very, um, a very specific type of plant in his garden that had been from the previous residence and he had no idea what it was and it was there in his front garden flourishing. Oh, fantastic. With, with alleged health benefits, obviously. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Well, that's fantastic. So now we know a bit more about you. Let's go on to the um, the picks. And we'll start with you, Julie. And the, our first person here is um, Sharon, who lives in Brixton. She's an office manager. And she's just finished Ordinary People by Diana Evans, which was, um, of course, on the shortlist for the Women's Prize for Fiction, which um, Cathy was talking about earlier. She's going on holiday in a couple of weeks. So she wants you know a nice, big, absorbing book uh, to last her the long flight. So, Julie, what are you going to give for her? Sounds like a kind of classic summer reads type thing. 
Yeah, so I just read um, this amazing, um, sprawling, big doorstop of a book. The only thing I would say that is slightly against it is that it is still in hardback, but um, it's The Parisian by Isabella Hamad, um, who's a British-Palestinian writer who's like 27 or something. It's ridiculous because this novel is just incredible. It's from Jonathan Cape, um, and I really needed a novel to get my teeth stuck into as well, um, and I absolutely loved it. It's set between France and Palestine from the beginning of the First World War, to just before World War Two, I remember um, Sharon said that she likes books where she can learn something new, and I definitely did from this. You learn all about Palestine just in its various occupations. It starts off um, following this young man, Midat, who is fresh from schooling in um, Istanbul, and he moves to Montpellier to train as a, a doctor and meets a woman in France who he falls in love with, and it's, but it sort of ends terribly, and then he moves to Paris. He then moves back to Palestine, um, and that's where most of the novel takes place but it's this big sprawling epic of just what's happening to Palestine and yeah. happening to the world in this incredibly tumultuous period and but it's also all about his kind of his falling in love and like struggling to make it and he's known as the Parisian when he gets back to his hometown in, in Palestine and because he's he sort of fall in love with fashion and all this it's just really amazing it's kind of like middle march i guess but um, uh, okay. in the way that yeah. yeah in the way that lots of characters do things you don't want them to do but oh i just absolutely loved it it would just you would get com- completely absorbed on it on a plane it's perfect for a flight yeah and i i do like those books where it's a fictional book but you're also learning a lot about a period or a place that you you wouldn't necessarily have come across before so rachel what what were you going to suggest for sharon well i'm poor sharon's going to have a bad back by the time she comes home <laughs> i've also gone for a I've also gone for a doorstop of a book. <laughs> 2,000 um, pages of your best books. <laughs> another, another, another hefty hardback. Um, this one, I think, I'm hoping she hasn't already read because it's been quite popular recently, but we chose it as our online book club. We have a, an online book club for introverted readers who would like to be part of a book club but oh, don't really want sweet. to have to go out and speak to oh, people. I love that. Um, yeah, well, a lot of booky people are like that, and book clubs can yeah. be quite intimidating. Um, so we went for Queenie by Candice Carter-Williams, yeah. and we just loved it. And, you know, she likes books about relationships, and, you know, she can learn something new. And we, we chose this because we just got really passionate about this kind of self-destructive young woman coming out of a relationship, looking to make better choices, you know, looking to find a place. Um, and, and we just thought the writing was amazing. I mean, you know, it is a big book, as requested, but at the same time, I think you fly through it because you just become completely immersed in Queenie's life. And, you know, it's frank and it's funny and you experience her heartbreak and her trials in a really real way, which is actually a very powerful thing to have achieved, given that, you know, I don't know what it's like to be a 25 year old Jamaican British woman living in London, Um, but it's still extremely relatable and you're completely drawn into her world. Uh, well, those those are both very good choices. Of course, Sharon didn't tell us where she's going on holiday, so let's hope she's not just flying to Brussels or something. Otherwise, she's going to have to read very very quickly. <laughs> but um, so, moving on to our second person, who's David, and he's from Leeds, and he's a teacher. Um, uh, the last book he read was When Did You Last See Your Father? Blake Morrison, well-known book there. Uh, he normally reads non-fiction, mainly history and politics. And his dad's just been diagnosed with lung cancer, which is a very sad situation. So he, he, I think he's after books about fathers and sons in this situation, or maybe fathers and sons generally. And we've got, well, depending when people are listening to the podcast, it's either Father's Day just coming up or it was just recently Father's Day. So what, what do you think for David, Julie? 
just first of all, David, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, I lost my dad last year to melanoma. And it's just so hard. Um, and books are a real solace, you know. Um, so Around the Fathers and Sons, I really want to recommend Kid Gloves, A Voyage Around My Father by Adam Mars-Jones, which I read a few years ago. And it's about a man who ends up looking, caring, being so carer for his widowed father, um, who is diagnosed with dementia. So it's dementia rather than cancer, but it's about that responsibility of care and as well as his own experience um, and how it affects his writing and um, responding to his relationship with his father over the time. It's really um, a really special book and really explores that dynamic, especially when the mother is gone as well, that that dynamic really fundamentally changes, which is really, really interesting. And also just, I hope I can tack up one on, which is a book that really helps me go through. A sneaky second choice is this. It's a book that I think I'm always trying to put into people's hands. We have a lot of people come into the bookshop who say that they're grieving or you know that they're uh, anticipating um loss um which is it's okay that you're not okay by megan divine it sounds a bit self-healthy but actually it's a book about our culture and how we don't talk about grief and we're just supposed to try to return to a happy place as soon as we can and actually it's a really wonderful book um she's got a brilliant instagram as well and she uses sort of case studies and um, so something like that might be quite helpful as well those are both very good choices and very thoughtful quite ones as well. yeah quite different yeah um and, and rachel where were you heading on this so we're hosting ed docs for an event um, as part of independent bookshop week and his book let go my hand i felt very much ticked the boxes um, mm. and I, I, I was again very hesitant to recommend it because having lost my own father as well I know how sensitive a subject this is but Ed just does such a wonderful um like a heartfelt job of navigating the reader through this this very difficult journey um and it's it's the story of a father's decision to uh, end his life at Dignitas and a journey with his three sons their last trip together he has the potential to be a very kind of harrowing read yeah. but he does it with a nice touch of dark comedy to stop it being too melancholy and also, David mentioned he, he prefers nonfiction and he likes historical and political books. And all this is a fictional story. There is philosophical debate in there and, and the, the, the brothers hold opposing views, but there isn't really any antagonism. And perhaps at the moment we could all learn a lot from that in the way that we're dealing with things. Um, but I also looked for something else. And, and Pop's Fatherhood in Pieces by Michael Shaban is um, a collection mm. of essays about what it is to be a father. Um, and it's literary, so it's not as on topic, but it might give him a better sense of the feelings that his dad has for him and, and, and feelings in general between fathers and sons. Oh, those are great. And um, Kathy always says that she you know, she doesn't join in in this section, but if you were here, you'd see her nodding and smiling. <laughs> so, uh, yes, so. I kept nodding. <laughs> <laughs> so we're on to our third and final person, and this is Maria, who lives in Leicester. She's retired, and uh, like many a person, she's been rereading Hilary Mantel's first two books in uh, anticipation, no doubt, of March next year. She loves historical fiction and she knows that no one can compare to Hilary Mantel, what she says. Uh, that. Um, mm-hmm. But are there any authors that come close? She likes reading about the Tudors, but I, I'm sure other historical periods are available. So, Julie, what are you going to do to rival Hilary Mantel for her? Oh, Maria, girl, I feel your pain. The mirror and <laughs> my life not come fast enough. Oh, my goodness. Um, so the closest thing is um, Janet McCullough's um, biography of Thomas Cromwell, which I believe is endorsed by Hilary Mantel and is incredibly readable. I've not read all of it, but I'm sort of dipping into it slowly and it's, it's really, really good. But what I'd actually like to recommend is another novel, which is Painter to the King by Amy Sackville, which came out 
last year and for some reason was completely overlooked in the awards circuit, which I think is a travesty because it's one of the best books I've read recently. Um, and it's been the first novel to scratch that Hilary Mantel itch for me. So it's 17th century rather than 16th century, but it's about the artist Diego Velázquez during his time as a court painter to Felipe IV of Spain. Um, so it's a little, a little bit later on, but it's just so inventive. Um, in the bookshop, I, I recommend this a lot. And, and often to people who are looking for something after they've finished the, the, the first two Cromwell books, it's, I'd say it's a blend of Hilary Mantel and Ali Smith, who are two of my favourite writers. Um, and it is more that experimental side. But then, you know, I'd really argue that Hilary Mantel is quite an experimental writer as well. It's really vivid and almost poetic at places, but funny, desperately sad, and really exposes the lives of these people at this time as much as it's possible to understand people who are living so long ago and such different lives from us but I, I absolutely loved it um painted to the king yeah loved it there's always something about the lives of painters isn't there they're always picked up on rachel what what were you going for in this kind of post hillary mantel period well i wouldn't try to compete with hillary <laughs> so i've gone completely off piste and i've gone for a, an entirely different historical period and one that we feel quite an affinity with um, here in Bedford, it's The Rapture by Claire McGlatton. Um, it's a historical piece, but it's quite modern in terms of its, its positioning in time. Um, and Claire wrote the book set in the Panacea Society, which was a, a, a what's been referred to as a terribly English cult that was established here in Bedford um, about 100 years ago. And the, the Panacea Society story itself is completely fascinating. And I drag anybody who will come with me to the museum to look around and to learn about these wonderfully eccentric women who set up this religion at a time when women had no agency at all. And the rapture is just wonderful. I just think it's got real warmth and, and Claire's ability to create a sense of place and time is is amazing. And it has these very complex layered characters. She's done an awful lot of research. So there's a, an awful lot of detail and it's historically very, very accurate. Um, so it's something very different to Hillary, but I think something that would maybe keep her going in the interim. <laughs> what was the period there? I, I, for my sins, I, have, I know so, nothing about the Now, I don't society. want to get this wrong. I think we're talking Edwardian period. So the 20s, yeah. Uh, maybe a little bit earlier than that. Okay. But basically, it's set. Um, in, it's a very. It's a true story, um, and the Panacea Society was a religion, and they believed that their leader was the mouthpiece of God, and they were waiting for the second coming of Jesus. And on the street next to the bookshop is the house where Jesus oh, was going to grow up. Fantastic! It's fascinating. It's bonkers, and I absolutely adore it. And I spend as much time in there as possible, wandering around with this macabre sense of these insane dotty old women over 100 years ago well fascinating and bonkers we'll take that so, um. <laughs> can i really naughtily allow myself a little interruption no you cannot <laughs> <laughs> i just would also like to say i'm also unbelievably desperately excited about the third hillary mantel i'd just like to chuck in a recommendation for sj paris's giordano bruno novels um, because they're very good and also if you haven't read them already there are i think five or six of them and another one coming later on next year the first one i think is called heresy and then you could read the other five or six and then read the new hillary mantel and then read the new sj paris the month after that so but they're very good thrillers um yeah. but they're just they're really good really dense really clever really well written really absorbing 
So I, I guess we probably can let Cathy keep that shell. <laughs> uh, okay, general consensus. Yes, Cathy, you are allowed. We'll allow it. Julie, uh, Rachel, before you leave us and head back to the shelves, back to the shops, um, what about giving me one book that you want everyone to read? New or old book, well-known, hidden gem, um, just you know, something you really want to champion. Julie, you go first. I give this an awful lot of thought because it's so difficult. I think really it has to be for me A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Zeki. I don't know if it's a hidden gem because it was on the, the Man Booker shortlist um, a few years ago, but I just feel like not enough people have read this book. It's a really beautiful novel and I put it into a lot of people's hands. And Canongate, um, one of our favourite publishers, are one of That's our locals. because they're in has, Edinburgh, yes. Yeah, they threw us a great party, actually. After oh, we fantastic. Wanted to, yeah, it was really lovely. Uh, yeah, so we, we really like those guys. But they um, they published a new edition of Tales for the Time Being into their canon series with a really beautiful redesign, which um, I believe was done by their junior designer. And it's just gorgeous. So it's a beautiful-looking book. And it is the story of um, now and a sort of fictional version of the author, Ruth, who are separated by an ocean. Ruth finds washed up on the beach she lives in British Columbia, a lunchbox which has this diary of this young girl in Tokyo who's having a terrible time. And she's trying to piece together this, this girl's life as well as experiencing her own. Um, and it's, it's just wonderful. Tale for the time being is about humans are time beings like we are beings in time and so it plays with time it plays with place um and it's oh, it's just one of the most exquisite novels i've ever read it's so original and stunning well that is fantastic and again kathy is beaming her head off at that choice Yay! Uh, I, 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 I love that book so much and <laughs> And Rachel, are you going for an adult pick or are you going for a children's book? Because we should have said you're, you're fundamentally you're your children's bookshop uh, down there. I am. I am. The book that I always recommend to people is that they're, they're kind of in the middle. You'd probably call them YA, but not your well-known books. Um, I usually, the book that I sell the most of, and until recently it was one of my little hidden gems that nobody had heard of, was by two not very well-known authors at all, I say very much tongue-in-cheek, Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, which yes. is Good Omen, <laughs> which, of course, now everybody yeah. knows about, and it's no longer my little secret. <laughs> and so I can't have that as my... So instead, I will go for the other one, that I indoctrinate half of the customers and half of the staff and half of the population of Bedford into buying, and they're all cursing me now because they're sucked into my obsession. And that's a series called The Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan. And it's a series of 14 books. So, you know, I'm playing a long game and I'm ensuring that I bring them back. <laughs> yeah. and, and each one is very much a doorstep book. And like Julie, they play with the concept of time. Uh, there are fantasy novels set in uh, another period, another age that is reminiscent and, and contains the mythology and some of the sometimes science, sometimes fantasy of, of different epochs of our own periods. But does it in the world building that Robert Jordan creates is it's like he's taken... Tolkien and just taking it stratospheric and I am completely obsessed with these books and I've been reading them for over 20 years and I go back and reread them again and once you get sucked into this cult you never get out alive and it's the, I, they're my favourite series ever. <laughs> well that's fantastic, I didn't know those books and did you say are the Robert Jordan books YA books as well are they also well, somewhere in between Eon? They are somewhere in between, people say that you would probably start reading them I would say a precocious 11 year old I came to them as an adult, um, but they, they are theoretically for from 11 and upwards. I, I, again, they're, they're very detailed. Each book is like a doorstop. There are 14 of them. It's, you, 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 it's a commitment. 
I did it over 20 years eventually um, because I kind of, you get to, there's, there's something commonly known in the fan field as the slog, which is around books nine to 10, where it, you just start losing the will to live because there are so many um, storylines and there are so many characters and he's just tying up loose ends that you just really have to be committed. And, and you know, but if you get through it, it's, it the payoff is huge. Fantastic. Well, listen, both of you, you've been absolutely brilliant and thanks for all the recommendations. So we'll let you get back to the book selling now to those lovely customers. So thanks so much and, and bye and we'll see you soon. Thanks for Thank having you. us. Weren't they just fantastic, Cathy? Um, oh, just and, lovely. Yeah. And and before we finish with those absolute favourites there too, um, can I tell you mine? Yeah, go on. The book is At the Lock of the Green Corrie, and the author is Andrew Gregg. Uh, I love this book. It's about Scotland, hills, male friendships, mental health. There's a lot. Mm. Whiskey. The poet Norman McHaig, who I didn't know until I'd read this. Now, my colleague at the bookseller, Emma Lowe, and her team knew I loved it. It's on the bookseller website. We all have our favourite books on there. And she arranged to get Andrew to sign a copy and put a personal message in it for a, a recent big birthday. A recent say. big a, birthday. A recent big birthday, yes. So I just wanted to say, it was, it was such a special thing. And so if Emma's listening, thanks again. And, and Andrew, if you're listening, I hope you're listening, um, we'll have that lunch. And, and everyone else, just buy this book. It is absolutely bona fide wonderful. Now we're nearly at the end of the show, but before we say goodbye, let's get out and about. And Nigel, I think you've got exciting news about BookGig, have you? Oh yeah, exciting news is that uh, we should have the upgrade of BookGig.com already for the end of June, fingers crossed. So that's a refresh for our readers, uh, but also for bookshops and festivals to post their events, make it easier for them. That's great. And what's caught your eye in terms of getting out and about in June? What do you fancy event-wise? Now, you were talking to Nathan Filer earlier, and if you can get to Bristol's Festival Ideas for the 19th of June, you can listen to Nathan at Waterson's there, talking about his new book, The Heartland. Whenever you're listening, I hope you don't miss out on Elif Shafak at Waterstones in Oxford on the 11th of June. Elif is the celebrated London-based Turkish author. I heard her down at Hay a couple of weeks back, and I've never heard someone exude a sense of our shared humanity more warmly you'll you'll absolutely she's amazing isn't she she just she sort of glows with some kind of magical quality yes yeah Uh, almost saint-like oh i don't know if that's going too far (laughs) well no i know what you mean though she hasn't she has an aura yeah um (laughs) and one that we spotted on book gig um for families one of the booksellers favorite children's authors david solomon's Mm. uh he's at the borders book festival on 16th of june with his latest which is my cousin is a time traveler yeah and that is a gorgeous festival yeah and David is a gorgeous writer. There we go. All um, super all round. So that's it. Uh, just a few there and more from Book Gig. Hopefully the new Book Gig next time. And I'm out and about myself in June. Are you now? Yep, I will. I'll be going to the Greenwich Festival on the 15th of June. And I'm interviewing Kerry Hudson, who we heard oh, on yeah. last month's podcast, and also Linda Grant. And I'll also be going to hear Hannah Beckerman, also that we've had on the podcast, interview Tracy Thorne, whose memoir about suburbia is really good and funny. So I'm looking forward to all that stuff. And of course, Greenwich is very nice. The water, the history. So that'll be great. Cool. That's it for now. We will be back in July and I'm very excited to tell you that we will be talking to the amazing David Nichols about his new novel, Sweet Sorrow. 
Thanks very much to the book doctors for their picks and thanks also to the readers who sent in their questions. If you'd like to be one of our patients or talk to us about anything, then you can tweet at The Bookseller or come to our Facebook page or just email us on podcast at thebookseller.com. We're available on iTunes, so please subscribe or listen to us at thebookseller.com. And so now we're going to play out with the opening of On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, written and read by Ocean Vong. And that will end the seventh edition of the Bookseller Podcast. This has been a heavy entertainment production. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Somewhere over Michigan, a colony of monarch butterflies, numbering more than 15,000, are beginning their yearly migration south. In the span of two months, from September to November, they will move one wing beat at a time from southern Canada and the United States to portions of central Mexico, where they will spend the winter. They perch among us, on windowsills and chain-link fences, clotheslines still blurred from the just-hung weight of clothes, the hood of a faded blue Chevy, their wings folding slowly as if being put away before snapping once into flight. It only takes a single night of frost to kill off a generation. To live, then, is a matter of time, of timing.